Well, thank you. You may want to wait to the end to decide if you want to do that. Good morning. I am so blessed to be here uh, at New Hope. I had uh, talked to Jason years ago about coming and, and preaching at New Hope, and it didn't happen at the old place. But now that you're in the new place, uh, what a blessing. He asked me months ago, because he knew he was going to be away, that if I would um, come and, and spend some time with you and, and, um, and with St. Hilda's, which is a blessing. I have not been in this building in probably six or seven years. And um, there's been a lot of history. I don't know if you know any of the history of, of what was St. Timothy's Church, but it was a, uh, uh, it's had an up and down, I'll tell you. And um, I remember coming in here and just the beauty of this place reminded me of when I was a, a two and three-year-old child. I grew up in, uh, as my mother was Roman Catholic, and she took us to church every Sunday, and we had a church, and I was born in Oakland, California, and we had a church very similar to this with incredibly beautiful windows, and my very first memory of church and God was sitting in a pew, much like this, staring at the windows. I didn't know what was going on up here. I didn't hear a word from whoever spoke. But looking at the beauty of those windows that told a story of, of just the, the beauty and magnificence of God was, for me, uh, again, my very first memory of church. And I, I could still picture them. I could still picture them in my mind. And when I come here, these are some of the most beautiful windows in a church that I have seen. And there are a lot of ways in which these buildings bring the glory of God to light for me. And hopefully for you, as you have settled in, I see. Have settled in, I see. I asked uh, Jason, I said, how does one preach for 17 months on one <laughs> book of the Scripture? And he goes, well, let me just give you the, the verses that I want you to preach on. And it was three. Now, in my tradition, in our tradition, we have an Old Testament reading, a Gospel reading, a New Testament reading, and a psalm every Sunday. And oftentimes they come together and oftentimes they don't. But I've been used to trying to make sense of the bigger picture instead of the small picture. So bear with me today, okay? Bear with me today. The scripture that you are, or we are exploring together is the last three verses of the third chapter of 1 Corinthians, where Paul says, So then, I was told and taught in seminary, whenever you see a therefore or a so then, it's a summary of everything that's gone on, at least in the preceding verses. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. I retired 
uh, January 1st, and I, I have to say I have enjoyed every minute of it. <laughs> Retirement has been a chance for me to get away from the, the uh, church business life. And it's, got, it's given me an opportunity to work on my own spiritual life. Oftentimes, pastors are so involved in your lives and in the administration of a church and in their own families and balancing all of that out and reading something and then saying, how am I going to apply that in, the, in, in my sermons, that pastors sometimes forget to take care of themselves in their own spiritual prayer life. And this has given me an opportunity to, to really settle in with God and discover for me and my family how much he loves me. And so it's been, it's been a blessing that way, but it's been a challenge. It's been a challenge because in the midst of that, I have so many choices during the day. I can get up and, and do many things now. Some of you might be retired, and hopefully you're enjoying that part of life. But with those choices, it means that I have to be even more diligent in my time with God. So I'm work, really working on still a good discipline to keep me grounded and focused, but, but it's been great. It's been good. It's been good. 28 years of ordained ministry, 18 at uh, All Saints in Reisterstown, uh, 10 in a small church, St. Francis of Assisi in, in Fortuna, California. I'm a California guy. I'm a sixth-generation Californian. My son is seventh, and my grandson is eighth. So we, we go, we're kind of those kind of folks, you know. And when I came out wet, uh, to the East Coast, uh, people thought I was a little bit um, not quite formal enough, and that's okay. I'm still not. My connection, again, with St. Hilda's A New Hope, for some of you who were in the leadership you know that um, Jason and I have been uh, colleagues for a number of years in the ministerium in Owings Mills and Reisterstown in Pikesville. And we were attending a lot of meetings together. And in the midst of those meetings, uh, you know, we just became acquaintances. And then one day he called me and said, can you meet me for lunch? Now, from what I understand, Jason does a lot of work at lunch. Because everybody I know has been to lunch, if something's going to happen and he invites you to lunch, be prepared for something exciting or challenging, put it that way. And during that lunchtime, he asked me a question about uh, Bishop Sutton. Because he had met Bishop Sutton on one of his trips, and I think it was a trip to Israel, as he is now, and they had developed a relationship and I, I don't know what they had explored together, but at the time, his question to me was, can I trust him? And I said, um, well, here's my experience. I have been under his bishopric for a number of years, and he's always been a straight shooter. He's always told me the truth, and he's never drifted me off into another way. Now, we were one of the more conservative parishes in the Episcopal Diocese, 
And we didn't always agree with what was going on in the church, but he's always supported us, and he always promised to support us, and he's still supporting that church in the midst of their search for a new priest. So we had that lunch, and then it was a, it was a stormy day, and Jason and I were speaking on the phone, and the Spirit of God kind of just led me to say, you know what, you'd make a great Episcopal priest. Maybe it was me, but I think God was working itself. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> I knew that she'd love this. And I said, I'd, I'd really at that time said, you'd be great to take over the church when I retire, because I was already thinking that way. Well, we kind of left that alone, and I don't know if it started something in him or it just enforced what was already going on, but Jason took an incredible uh, a path to go back to school to become ordained in this denomination that is, um, at least from the outside, looks a bit strange. Uh, from the inside, it is even more strange. <laughs> but, uh, and, then, and then it went on from there. We, we were exploring how perhaps New Hope could merge with All Saints. And it didn't quite work out. There was... There was just a lot of things that didn't happen, and there was some disappointment. But in God, all things work together. And then, and then the opportunity, and I know it was a big challenge for you all to come out this way, but to, to be able to have this facility and to start a new church, uh, I think it's an incredibly marvelous thing. A beautiful uh, beginning of not only you impacting perhaps this community, although I, I, you probably are coming in, but to, to again reignite the ministry of St. Hilda's to impact this community. Uh, in God, all things are possible. In God, all things are possible. And who knows, if we have enough patience, we will see that all things do work together for good. And, and it, it's marvelous. And then, of course... During the process, Jason was um, at All Saints for his 8 o'clock service because we were the ones that uh, uh, sponsored him for ordination. And some of you were there for that great event and his confirmation and his, all of the things that go with uh, what I call the minutia of church. But, um, but I was called to be his mentor, but... I, that was not to mentor. All I did was show him how to do the sacraments, you know. Jason and I are colleagues, so we work together through this. And so that's how I ended up here, okay? And we do have a connection, and I'm really honored to be here with you. And in fact, right now, it's interesting, besides filling in in places in the Episcopal Church around, I'm going to an evangelical church right now. <laughs> so I feel right at home. And the reason why is we, we, it was through God. He, we met a pastor and his wife who is trying to incorporate liturgy into his, into, his, uh, um, into his services. And then in the midst of that, um, he's getting a lot of pushback. Now, that doesn't happen here, of course. But, <laughs> but he gets a, he's getting a lot of pushback. And so I think God called us there to support him and to help him along the way. So anyway, I, I grew up Roman Catholic, and um, 
And then I, uh, anybody remember the 60s? Some people even in the 60s that lived through that don't remember the 60s. But <laughs> I, I was a product of the 60s. I left church. I, I rebelled. I worshiped trees and bushes and whatever else was going on. I, I, I was a lost soul. And, um, and I won't get into any more of the stuff that happened in the 60s, but I, as I grew up in the 60s, I, I basically, my faith was just a blur. And my life began to uh, really spiral down. And, and I was lost. I was literally lost. And, and I had met my now wife as we worked together, and there was a phenomenon that happened in the late 60s and early 70s, the Jesus movement, and it was based, I guess it was all over the place, but in California it was based in San Francisco and the Bay Area and the North and the South, and there was a move of the Holy Spirit that just brought hundreds of thousands of young people into a new relationship with Jesus Christ. And I thank God I was one of them. I remember the day. Some of us have a date, you know, we can put down there. Uh, it was January 22nd, 1972, 9 o'clock in the evening, in a church called Christian Disciples Church. And there were, again, it was, it was a little bit about this size, and it was packed with kids, and it was packed with excitement, and it was packed with the Spirit of God. And I knew that something was real and I needed it. And I went forward and the preacher asked me, do you want to receive Jesus? And I, and I didn't know what that meant. I was Catholic. You know, I received communion. I did other stuff. And I said yes. And from that moment, my life was changed. My life was changed. And we started into this incredible community of young believers that were so excited about God. We would pass out tracts and papers. We would talk to people on the street. We would hold signs and protest, you know, whatever was going on. We were crazy. And we shared in community a whole bunch of stuff. Spent almost every day either with our friends, or with other Christians, or uh, in church. We would go to church four, five, six times a week. And I, and, I, and I was introduced to the scriptures. And they were so powerful and life-changing. Janet and I got married only six months after we had met in the midst of this change in our lives because she, she beat me out by two days <laughs> of becoming a, a, a Christian. But anyway, as we began to grow together as a couple and a family. We started a family right away. And a couple, uh, out of thought, we died and went to heaven. Incredible worship, incredible community, and wonderful things. And then, and then, my job was going to move me about 150 miles north of Sacramento. This all happened in Sacramento, California, to a place called Redding, and the church had decided to change the leadership style, and they, it was something called shepherding. I don't know if you were around then. Were you around then? And they would take people 
as shepherds and place them over a group of families to guide them. And we found that in the midst of us all being guided by different people, some of which did not have the maturity, Christian maturity, to faithfully listen to God, that our church began to really fall apart. And we were told, I was told, uh, no, it's not God's will that you move. And I said, well, then you are going to pay my salary and raise my children, right? And uh, no, but it's not your will to move. And we ended up moving, and shortly thereafter, the whole uh, beautiful work of God just crumbled, imploded, and fell apart in factions. I am of Paul. I am of Cephas. I'm of Apollos. I'm of John. I'm of Chris. I'm of Fred. And what happened there touched my life because it broke our hearts, really, when we found that the church was falling apart in that way because God had started with such a beautiful way. And so when I got this scripture and we're thinking about the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, and the very first issue that he deals with is disunity within the church. Disunity within the church because of the factions. So it it means something to me. And then I, I went from church to church and I found out that, gee, we don't all get along. We are a stubborn bunch. And I was trying to find out what's happening. And then as I grew in leadership in the church, I found out that it, it got even more intense. And then when I finally went to seminary and became a pastor, the first church I pastored was a reasonably healthy bunch. And through circumstances, through disagreements, through this one treating that one wrong, through having a person standing at the door telling people, you don't really want to come here, because you're going to mess us up. It was a church that began with 17 folks. And in the midst of that, we came in and I said to myself, all you got to do is love the people and teach Jesus and everything's going to be fine. And I was, again, a bit disillusioned. And so I've spent 28 years in ministry, much of it without the training in seminary that one would hope, trying to bring people to unity, trying to bring the church back to a place where it began. Now, where did it begin? Jesus, on the last night before he went to the cross, brought his disciples together, and he did something really amazing. He began to wash their feet. Now, From a Middle Eastern perspective, the feet were one of the dirtiest places of the body. Only a slave or the lowest of low would touch someone's feet. You walked through stuff back then. I mean, we didn't have socks and shoes and showers, you know. And and so when Jesus touched their feet, he he was showing them what being humbled before one another and servant was like. And he told his disciples, you know what I'm doing for you? I want you to do the same because humility to me what I've learned over my experience is the key to being one 
if we can humble ourselves before God and humble ourselves before one another. You heard that throughout this first chapter, chapters of Corinthians as the, you know, Paul speaks of the wise and the not-so-wise. Well, I know better, so I'm going to be right and I'm going to dig in and I'm going to have my position is going to be my position. It may sound wise, but it's not always what God wants. So he taught them, he said, do what I do to you. And then later on that evening, after they've had supper and they're just getting ready to leave, Jesus calls his disciples together and he begins to pray for them. Now, he's going to go to the cross the next day. And he knew it. Now, if you were going to die, and uh, hopefully not soon, and you had a chance to, to say your last words to somebody, what would you tell them? I remember my father-in-law brought every one of the children in and the, and the in-law kids, told each one of them they were his favorite, you know. And I was his favorite son-in-law. I really think I was, but that's a whole different issue. <laughs> So anyway, Jesus is praying for his disciples, and then he says this. He, he begins to pray, and he says, My prayer is not for them alone, but I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us, believers in Christ. And what does he pray? That they would be one. Father, just as you and me are one, and I am in you, that they, they will be one so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Those words ring in my ears so loudly that they would be one. And how often did he say that he wanted his disciples to not only humble themselves before one another, but to be in unity. Unity is a centerpiece of evangelism. If we are evangelistic Christians... What is the way Jesus said the world will know that he's true is how we love one another, how we are one, how we are one, what, in him. Because we are different. We have different ways of thinking. We have different things in which we, we you know, separate ourselves, but there's one thing in common in Christ alone. That's why I'm calling this in Christ alone. Can we be one? Can we come together. So how long did that last? Remember after Peter preached and 3,000 came to be saved that day and the whole city of Jerusalem is all up in turmoil. What should we do? Get baptized and sell all your stuff and live together and share with one another. That takes a whole lot of trust and humility, doesn't it? What if he told us that today? Okay, New Hope, you're a community. I want you all to put your stuff, give it to Jason and he'll divvy it back out to you. And we're going, I don't think so. Well, it started out that they did that, and it was a real amazing display of Christ's love at that time. And again, how long did it last? Well, I don't know how much later it was that it fell apart, but Ananias and Sapphira began to withhold, and, and then the... the, the, the uh, Division began, the mistrust began. And if we look and read the scriptures, almost, and, I, and I, I, I'm pretty sure it's most, but almost every one of the letters, not only just of Paul, but of John and of Peter, deal with 
We need to be one. Because Jesus said, that's how the world will know that you sent me. That's how the world will know my love, by how you love one another. And so we have a responsibility with the grace and blessing that God gives to us to act that out, to humble ourselves before one another so that we can really show what life is about, what the, what the kingdom of God looks like. One of the most influential books I read when I was doing my doctoral, doctor of ministry work in congregational development was called The Missional Church. And the missional church was written by a number of Presbyterian pastors who, actually they're from Canada, who were trying to think, what does a missional church look like? Is it one that sends missionaries out to all these different places? Is it one that goes out in the street and shares the gospel? He said, no, the, the best example of a church in mission is when a person walks through their doors into their community, they see a glimpse of heaven. They see what it looks like as an alternative to the world. And as you love and forgive and work together and put aside some of the things that distract us, that is what people will see, and that's what I really believe this world wants. This world's divided. Gosh, someone said, you know, that a pastor or a preacher should have the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other. And God, I'm putting down my newspaper. It's distressing. We have, of course, the world news of division and war. Our nation, this political process to me has just turned me upside down. In, in, in uh, the, race, the racial divide, which, you know, I think many people thought we got through that in the 60s, but it, we're not. We've found ways to divide and, and found ways to pit one against another. And what's the answer? The church is divided. I, I, has anybody heard of Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary? It's an incredible, wonderful uh, seminary. In the evangelical tradition, they have a center for global Christianity. And while the Christian church has grown, it's the largest of all the uh, uh, religious organizations in the world, we have found some really... Well, let's just say we have found many ways in which we can separate ourselves from each other. They have been tracking the number of denominations uh, since back in the beginning of the church. Of course, the earliest part of the church, the first four or five hundred years, there were heresies, there was all kinds of divisions of how uh, uh, Jesus is Jesus and who God is and how salvation happens. Then the Eastern Church and the Western Church split in the 11th century. But by the 19th century, 19, not 20th century, 1900, they counted uh, a little over 1,600 ways at which we have divided ourselves. Whether it be denominationally or whether it be regionally, not always not believing the same things, but we have separated and that is shocking in itself. So by the year 2000, guess how many times we have learned to divide ourselves? Over 34,000 Christian organizations throughout the world. 
2012, we're now looking at over 43,000 ways in which we've divided ourselves. That, to me, um, tells me something. I wonder what Jesus is thinking. The world will know that the Father has sent me by how you become one. And now that we're... Now, again, not all are adversarial, but still. Uh, I think 22 or 25,000 of those are independent churches that just don't have an affiliation. So the devil is laughing, I believe. And it causes us, to, uh, at least me, to say how and what can we do as church? How and what can we do as church? I've been in a number of churches. In, in, 19, in 2012, I, w- I was taking my last sabbatical before retirement, and Janet and I were going to travel around the country and go to all the national parks, and I got a call from my daughter who uh, goes to a church in Zurich, Switzerland. She's married a Swiss guy. And her church is the International Protestant Church of Zurich. And it's not a non-denominational church. It is an interdenominational church. And when I first visited her and went to that church, I thought, here we go. I died and went to heaven again. You wouldn't believe every language, people, nation, color, people wearing their native clothes. The commonality of that, it was English-speaking, it was evangelical, they believed in Christ, and, and they respected the denominational differences. And it was, it's a marvelous place. So, in 2012, I get a call from my daughter and said, what are you doing this summer on your sabbatical? And I said, well, we have this trip planned. And she goes, you think you can come to Zurich? And they're talking about inviting you to be our summer interim pastor. And here this church that I had this thought that was the most, the best expression of church that I have found had just split terribly over a pastor. And they asked me if I would come and try to begin the healing process. So for 10 weeks, we were there 12 weeks, anyway, I I sat, I listened, I cried, I, I couldn't solve their problem. And they're coming out of it now, thanks be to God. But even in the best of places, division is there. And Christ says no. Christ says no. And that's where I believe Paul is today, because things haven't changed that much. In fact, I was watching television Uh, during the midst of all of our divide, and and one of the commentators said, we need now a unifying leader to bring us together. And I yelled at the television. I said, we have one if you'd listen. It's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. It's a way to come together. So church, we've got to get unified behind him and learn how to be that agent. Who prayed that this morning? The agent of change. Change, change, change. And we're to change the world. We're to change the world. We have him, Jesus Christ. We, in, in, at St. Hilda's service, we have three lessons, 
uh, that we read, and today's middle lesson was from Colossians. Now, why is Jesus worthy? Because from that lesson, from Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God. In him, all things in heaven and earth were created. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, and Christ, and he is at first place in everything. For all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him, and through him all things are reconciled to God. Now that's a mighty statement. If we indeed believe the scriptures, which I believe we do, he is worthy to be the one to unify us. But it takes those things, humility before him. Even when we're right. The other lesson we read from the gospel is Martha, the story of Martha and Mary. How many of you are Martha's <laughs> and Mary's? You know, Martha is, is uh, clanging dishes and serving, and, uh, you know, they're old friends, but she's working, and Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet, and Martha's complaining, and Jesus said this. He said, you were distracted by many things. You were distracted by many things, and she's chosen the better. Sometimes we are distracted by many things and we don't get to sit and listen to what Jesus is telling us. Spending the time, again, what I'm learning, to build again that relationship with God so that we can be of one mind. But we can't be of one mind if we all hold on dearly to what I think. Now that sounds bad, unless we're thinking what Jesus is thinking then we need to really understand how to come together. For he is worthy. And in the end, guess what? I believe the, book, the Bible tells me that at the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess his name and all this world will be put together again. But why can't we start now? Let's start now. Unity is so important. And again, not all the issues that we have to divide over are the same. For the Corinthians, at this point, it was who their leader was. Was it Cephas, who was the first of the apostles? Was it Apollos, who was an incredible orator? He was able to, he was a wise man. Was it Paul, who first brought the gospel to them and was their leader? What are the, what are the distractions for us? Sometimes we can get distracted in theology, Christology. How Jesus is present in the Eucharist. How we do liturgy. What, what's the place of sacrament? And we've divided ourselves to the detriment of the church over those things. But Jesus said, oh gosh, you're distracted by that. Yeah. These things are important to us. But we need to focus on Christ alone. That's the beginning point. That's the beginning point. So what does Paul say? Let's get back. I'm sorry. I got lost from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So then, after all of that, whether it's Paul or Apollos or Cephas or Christ, whether it's wise or wisdom or your thinking versus God's thinking, so then, what does Paul say to end up this part of that, of that argument? I mean, he'll get back into it, how we put it back together. What's he say? Stop. 
basically. Cut it out. No more boasting about human leaders. Okay, that's the beginning. And that's an arresting kind of a, of a, a, a suggestion, but it, hopefully it caught their attention and ours. When you're finding yourself divided, stop and pray and wait and read what God says about these things. And if we don't understand, give it time. Patience is an incredible virtue because God doesn't work things out for us quickly always. Cut it out, you guys. Why? Because we belong to Christ. He says we don't belong to the leaders in their churches. They belong to us. That's There you go. I was at uh, All Saints for 18 years, and now they're looking for another leader, and they're not going to get me back. Jason Poling is your pastor right now, but he's for you. You're not, you don't belong to him. You belong to Christ. And he is a vessel of Jesus' word and ministry and heart so that you can learn from him. And if another pastor comes, there is another, uh, perhaps, perspective, another way in which you can glean. In fact, he says, you know, Paul was there for you. I was there for you. Apollos was there for you. Well, hopefully you learned and added to your, to your growth in him. Cephas is there for you, and he gave you another layer of understanding. And then he goes on to say, it's not just that. Everything is yours because you are Christ, and you are heirs with Christ. The world belongs to who? It belongs to God and Christ, and you're heirs to that. The world is there for us to learn in and make changes in. We don't belong to the world. We belong to Jesus, and the world belongs to us, the church is there for us. God uses everything to teach us and to guide us and to inform us, whether it be the world or life or death, the present, the future. All of that are, are gifts from God for us to, to honor him and glorify him and, and learn of him. So for the Corinthians... Paul concludes, he says, just boast in Christ alone. For Christ is who you belong to and God. So as for you and for me and for each other, Paul has words in a different book he, in Corinthians, which is my, the most challenging yet my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Have the same mind amongst yourselves which was in Christ Jesus. Who being in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to or exploited. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant even to the point of death. You see, for me, we're called to be like him. 
And he didn't hang on to what he could have hung on to even when he was right. Even when Scripture backed him up. But he gave himself. Could that be the key for us becoming more one in him alone? Yeah, maybe we lost this one. But would Christ win it in the end? For the world will know that, uh, that the Father sent me by how you are one and how you love one another. And so it's important. And why these verses, for me, these three verses really kind of just jumbled my brain this week as I was thinking about sharing with you. So how long do we have to do this? Well, Ephesians 4 Paul says there is only one body, one spirit, just also as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And then a little later he goes on to say, then use all of the gifts. Some are apostles and teachers and, and, and I don't have the list in front of me. So that we can learn from them until when? Until we all, that's, I don't know how many's in here, but all, attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to become a mature person to the measure, this is our goal, and stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Counting others as important. Humbling ourselves before each other. Humbling ourselves before God and his word. And then watching God work. I believe that the experiment here at St. Hilda's and New Hope can be a symbol of that very thing. How you welcome one another in spite of our differences. How we treat one another and reach out so that the love and grace of God bursts forth through these beautiful stained glass windows and the community around you senses something's going on. That's exciting. That's exciting. I'm glad that I got a chance to be Maybe just at the beginning of it, but maybe you'll see me again. But uh, I don't know, maybe 17 months or 17 months after you finish 1 Corinthians, we'll try something else. <laughs> Love one another as Christ has loved you. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are a stubborn folk, at least I am. Father, we pray for your spirit to touch each of our hearts and lives so that we can stop focusing on differences and begin to focus on you, Christ alone. In Christ alone is our salvation. In Christ alone is our hope. In Christ alone is our future. In Christ alone is the answer to the problems of this world. Pour out your spirit upon us and give us humble hearts that you be glorified in all that we do and say. For we pray in the name of our Savior 
Jesus Christ. Amen.